Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is going to be episode 253 of the show. Damn, that's a bunch of episodes. I know, Tim. So I, I'm your co-host, Mike. I got Tim here in the booth with me as well. And uh, it's currently Tuesday. When I was starting my Only in CBS podcast, I was reading about podcasts. Mm -hmm. And there was a stat similar to most, you know, most businesses don't it's make like it. It's less than like 10% make it past 10 episodes yeah, or something, something like that. Yeah, something like that. I was really surprised because everybody gets excited and then... The consistency, which it takes, is pretty uh, overwhelming for people. They give up. So well, I think it's I think it's because most people start a podcast with the intention of, well, I'm going to make money off this thing, or <laughs> good joke. Yeah, <laughs> you're not going to make money on a podcast. Uh, but if you're really passionate about what you're doing and, and you enjoy it, yeah, and you can kind of keep its consistency, and then maybe maybe eventually someday you might make a little bit of yeah, money. Yeah, build an audience, provide some value. A lot of people, I think, go in the. Uh, America's Got Talent or was he on uh, American Idol where, mm -hmm. where everybody tells them yeah. they got something to say and then they get on there and they realize, oh no, I don't have as much value as right. I thought. Right. It's a very humbling experience. Yeah. But, but you were not here for this one. Yeah, I was not. I was not. So our guest today on the show in the interview is Linda Lemkiel and she is the president of MedVet and MedVet is an emergency hospital for pets. Yeah, it was, a, it was really, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I enjoyed most of our conversations, but- it was cool to hear how they scratch their own itch. Really, like this one's really like a scratch your own itch situation, and it was it came from lack of something to fill in their own need, and so that's really interesting. A really interesting story, and obviously people love their pets. Mm -hmm. uh, dogs, dogs are great, obviously, dogs. but not but, cats though. Yeah, I like cats too. Uh, they're 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 going to be all kinds. I'm getting <laughs> cat people Twitter is going to come at me. I hope so. Oh, I'm going to be destroyed. But with, <laughs> you know, with, with insurance for humans is, is a rough thing, but then, you know, dogs, people think about, you don't think of it like, you think of it as your part of your family, but mm -hmm. you don't think of when it gets hurt, like it's part of your family and those expenses. I had a buddy whose dog just recently had like a 10 or $12,000 surgery and they're not expecting that whatsoever. So this, they're, what they're providing is, is something that, that is needed. And mm -hmm. uh, it's just something that I guess wasn't really there. So anyways, I'm not gonna tell you the whole story, right? but she, you can was, listen to it. she was great. Uh, keep listening. And, uh, and enjoy it. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be right back. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Jenny Brittenbauer of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. I'm truly never comfortable. When I'm comfortable, I'm bored. I just have to keep going. Only when you're a little bit scared are you in a place where you're about to learn something. We're explorers, and explorers are making discoveries because they are going places where people haven't before. Urban Meyer. There's one guarantee in this world, and that's hard work will be rewarded. And hard work, you have to embrace discomfort. I love how you said that. Live uncomfortably. Donato's Jane Abel. We have a umbrella idea of agape capitalism, which is about doing business and doing it with love and giving back to the community. And I believe in our products, but more importantly, I believe in our people. Pelotonia CEO, Doug Oldman. There's this genuine pride for things that were born and raised in Columbus. And that's awesome. At the same time, there's this beautiful Midwest humility. People don't necessarily care about who gets credit. Cameron Mitchell of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants. One of our goals is to be better today than we were yesterday and better tomorrow than we are today. And that goal stays the same 24 7365. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey everybody, welcome to Conquering Columbus. Today we are excited to welcome our guest, Linda Lemkul. So some background on Linda, she is the CEO of MedVet, one of the most uh, well-known and fastest growing groups of emergency and specialty referral veterinary hospitals for companion animals. She joined MedVet as a staff cardiologist back in 2000. Over the past 20 years, she has moved her way up to take on the CEO role in 2019 
Excited to have her on the show today to talk about her experience and everything MedVet has going on. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Linda. Thank you. Excited to be here. So usually where we start these off is we, we kick back to uh, the milestones along the way that led to them finding their uh, passion or career, which, which yours being in, in the veterinary field. Um, what sticks out to you as you look back through whether it's as early as childhood or where you grew up that kind of shaped your love for animals and, and, and led you down this route? That one's kind of easy for me because I was one of those people that have that thing I wrote in kindergarten, I want to be a veterinarian, but veterinarian's misspelled, <laughs> you know? So I really always loved animals. I grew up in a home that had lots of pets. And, you know, then as I got older and my interest in science matched that love for pets into veterinary medicine. So I really did, I was sort of focused on it all the way along. And you grew up here in Columbus? We actually um, moved from Maryland. Um, my husband and I both grew up in Maryland, and I moved here to go to vet school at Ohio State. So you, you go to vet school at Ohio State, and when you get done, do you immediately jump into— so do, do you do both your—here's a better question— your undergrad and your uh, postgrad studies at Ohio State? I actually went to undergrad at Virginia Tech, and then I went to vet school at Ohio State— I thought you probably went to undergrad and vet school at the same place. So I picked an undergrad that had a vet school back then. Vet schools were very state-based. So I was from Maryland. So you could go to Virginia, you could go to Ohio State, you could go to Cornell. There were only a few options. Um, but I liked both, undergrad and Ohio State. Ohio State's got a great vet school. Isn't there some type of Caribbean options too? I feel like I've heard of, of people studying down there. There are. There's a couple. There's Ross. I'm trying to think of the other name. Um they have, they're in beautiful locations. They're very expensive. Does that transfer to the U.S.? Like, is your license, or you only practice down there? No, they can practice in the United States. Interesting. A fair number of our docs are great docs or Ross graduates. Nice. So you get done with vet school, and then what do your first couple roles look like when you get out? So because I became a specialist, I'm a veterinary cardiologist by training, you have to do a one-year rotating internship which I did at Ohio State, and then you do a three-year residency in your specialty. So you're employed. Um, you're just not making any money. No, just kidding. You know, you're really still in training. So I did that for four years, and then I stayed at the university on faculty as an assistant professor in cardiology for about six or seven years before I joined MedVet in 2000. So did you enjoy the, the, the study side and the teaching side of it more than you enjoyed the actual practice? No, I really liked it all. When I um, when I went to vet school, I thought it was going to be a general practitioner. You know, like your family veterinarian, you might take your dog to get a spay or a neuter or vaccinations. But that was really the only part of veterinary medicine I had ever seen. And uh, since I was 14, I had worked at a boarding kennel downstairs from a vet hospital. And then I got a job in the vet hospital. And I figured I was going to come out of vet school and buy that practice <laughs> and be a private practitioner. But then you go to vet school and you know, I remember sophomore year, the first time the specialists started walking in the room to be our teachers, and suddenly you're like, oh, I want to do that. <laughs> so the cardiologist there at the time, John Bonnegur, was just a world-leading veterinary cardiologist, and he was so inspirational, I decided I wanted to be a specialist. Is it as common to specialize in, in the veterinary field? You know, it's, it's less common than in human medicine, right? In human medicine, you pretty much have to do a specialty, right? You finish med school, and then you go out and do some type of additional training, in veterinary medicine, probably maybe 80% of the class finishes veterinary school and goes out and becomes a general practitioner. So, you know, a family veterinarian without um, additional training other than veterinary school. That's four years. So, you know, they're ready. 
uh, but maybe 10 to 20% of the class goes on to become a specialist. So a cardiologist, a neurologist, an internist, a surgeon, and that takes three to five more years, depending on the specialty. So you go through all that education and training and preparation, and then you're, you're finally doing it yourself. Was it everything that you expected when you first jumped on or were there any type of, uh Oh, did I, did I spend a lot of time uh, going down a direction that wasn't right for me? No, it was, it's always felt great to me since I started. I remember being a freshman in vet school and freshman year of veterinary school is a lot of anatomy and basically just memorization. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I really like this or not. Maybe I want to go back and do my PhD in biochemistry or something. But then sophomore year when it starts to become clinical and it's about, hey, you got this patient, you got to figure out what the heck's going on. It's really a problem, you know, and you have to figure out the solution to help them. Once it became that for me, sophomore year vet school after that, it was all super exciting. I still remember the very first shift I was on as a doc instead of a student was July 4th. And it's busy. <laughs> July 4th is busy. And I remember the cases coming in, you know, the patients coming in and I was just kind of doing my job and everything seemed to be going pretty well, but it was, um, it was a big transition and I'll never forget because when, uh, at the time our department head, um, one of his patients had come back in and it had what's called a pneumothorax, it had free air in its chest. And when you, when a patient has that to stabilize them, you need to stick a needle in their chest and drain off the air. And that's not that hard. You know, a new grad can do that. So I'm tapping his chest and it's going pretty well, but the air keeps coming and keeps coming. Then you have to put a chest tube in. And that's something, you know, I think we did once in vet school and I had a senior resident behind me and we were both really busy. And I said, gee, you know, this dog, I keep tapping his chest. And she says, you need to put a tube in, go do it. And I, I did it and I, it went fine. But at the end of the shift, she said, gee, I've never done that. <laughs> and I was like, you didn't make it sound like that when you said, go ahead, put that in. <laughs> so it was off and running. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, my dog, I feel like you could shove a Dyson vacuum down there and it still would not. She is the craziest thing. And I, like, I feel like if I ever took her to a vet, they would just be like, this isn't a dog and I want you to immediately take it home. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> but you said, I think what's awesome when you said, I thought for a second I might go back and get a PhD in biochemistry. And I was just thinking the amount of times I heard Tim say that. I, <laughs> yeah, I'm still considering it. <laughs> yeah, he's still, he's been sleeping on it. Yeah, yeah. Just, it, I've just been too busy to, you know, go get my degrees. Well, that was my undergraduate degree, so. I envy you, um, you know, still, I still don't think I have any idea what I want to do. You know, I had like things that I did, obviously, and I, and I went for them, but I never, I never had that like one specific thing that, I envy people who have that, like, from a young age, regardless of when it is, but it's just like the one, you know, specific thing, you know, they, the, the jack of all trades, you can be like decent at stuff, but I tend to never be like that great at things. I'm like, I can pick something up quickly and then I get bored with it. Or, you know, I want to do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but for you to just know right away, that's like, that seems rare and like desirable. Yeah. I think it was a little bit of a blessing. Again, um, I don't think I really knew what a veterinarian really was when I thought I wanted to be it, but it did all work mm -hmm. out well, right? I wanted to be a cowboy when I was little and I, I only knew from like old Westerns. So I thought I was gonna be like shooting bad guys who were like robbing saloons. So I didn't really have a great, great handle on reality either. <laughs> no, you just don't. I remember my dad was a mechanical engineer, but he always said engineer to us. And I think I was in middle school when I realized he didn't drive a train, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> So what about mentors? Was there, was there anybody, whether it was through academics and, and your teaching or professionally that really stuck out and, and helped mold you into you, who you are today? Definitely. I have two. 
Um, and I have to laugh because I've been married, um, my husband for 34 years and he calls them work husband number one and work husband number two. Um, <laughs> so the first was John Bonagura. That was the cardiologist at Ohio state when I was a vet student. And again, when he came in as taught to us in sophomore year, I was like, I want to be him. And, um, so I had him as a vet student and then I did my internship and residency with him as my mentor and then stayed on as his colleague at the university for six or seven years. He's just a really smart, you know, loves every patient, got to get every patient better, just a really great mentor. And then um, the second is Eric Schertel, who's a surgeon. Eric is the chairman of the board at MedVet today. He was the CEO before me. And he joined MedVet in 1999 and sort of helped talk me into joining MedVet in 2000. And we've really been pretty locked arm building MedVet through the years. And he's just such a, um, he's the perfect combination of visionary and practical, which, you know, I think is really important in a young growing business that you have both of those pieces. That combined with he's um, very unbelievably values and integrity based. So I've been very lucky to have Three great men in my life. <laughs> Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. So what about joining the MedVet team? When did you make that decision and, and what really enticed you to jump on board? Now, it's a great question because it was a hard decision because I did like the university. Um, Ohio State has a great vet school, great colleagues, loved teaching, um, liked being a clinician, um, liked doing clinical research. And I had done it for about a decade, you know, as a young faculty member. I think there was something missing that I couldn't quite put my fingers on until I left. And it was the ability to grow something. You know, the university is pretty you know, sort of straight and narrow, you know, here's your path to your point earlier about career, you know, like, mm -hmm. this is what you're going to do. You're the veterinary cardiologist at Ohio State. You're going to do this for the next 30 years. And I think I was looking for a little more growth and entrepreneurial piece. And that's what MedVet offered. And it was very convenient that it was down the street, you know, I didn't have to move. And that a lot of people that I was either on faculty with or had been residents with at Ohio State had started to go to MedVet. So I knew a fair number of the people there. Makes a lot of sense. I think one of the things that's always enticed me to smaller companies and startup environments is because the idea of like a larger corporation and knowing that I put in four years and then I get this if I work really hard and then I put in another four years. But, you know, in, in those younger, more agile or uh, ambiguous environments, something outside academia, for example, you you kind of have this little bit of uh, almost like this lottery type dopamine that you get from waking up every morning, just not knowing what's going to happen today and who knows where my career is going to go from here and grow. Uh, so when you jumped on the team, what did the size and structure look like? Was it fairly small? Yeah, we had, uh, we were one hospital, the hospital in Worthington, which was our first location and boy, two handfuls of docs maybe. And today, so 20 years later, we have 2,700 team members, about 500 docs, 32 locations in 15 States and 10 are in Ohio. Oh, wow. So. That's unbelievable. And what were you, what was your role and focus when you first joined the team? So when I first joined the team, I was the first cardiologist on the team. We had a surgeon, an internist, radiologist, a dermatologist, a couple surgeons. So I joined as the first cardiologist. And back then, MedVet wasn't, um, we really weren't one organization yet. 
to, to the client we were, to the people who came in. They had one front desk and one group of docs and clinical services team members helping them. But we were separately owned, you know, somebody owned surgery, somebody owned medicine, okay. which was fine for us for a while. But as we grew as a team and we realized we really wanted to deliver the best care in the world, we knew we had to become one team, you know, all the way so that we could really drive change and process improvement. So joined as a cardiologist working for the person who owned medicine. Then I bought the cardiology practice. And then a few years later, we got it straight. <laughs> you know, we all became one. We valued each individual company and became MedVet as a whole. Oh, so it wasn't actually MedVet when you started. It was it was like a con- conglomerate of people? It was really a conglomerate of different professional organizations. Our name was MedVet. Gotcha. But again, we weren't structured okay. as well as we are now to grow and drive change and support our teams. So you talked earlier about, I forget the exact way you made the comment, it was something about getting out and buying or starting your own veterinary practice. And then you ended up making this move and then purchasing the cardiologist practice. So what inside of you has just been like, it seems like you've always kind of known I'm going to buy this and I'm going to create a business maybe and grow it. Have you been pretty entrepreneurial from that aspect? You're making me think. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't think it was front and center. I, I've never been never been financially motivated, you know? So it wasn't like, oh, I want to grow a business because then I'll, you know, have this thing I grow that's worth something. Um, but I have always been really motivated to deliver great service. And I had a picture of what that looked like. And sometimes I think, you know, that if you got that picture and you work for somebody else, they might not have that picture. <laughs> so to really control that we could get to where we had a place that delivered the best care and the best service that sort of meant stepping into a lead role. Well, that's really cool. And it probably speaks testaments to, you know, what you what you and your team went on to achieve. I mean, I think, you know, I'm pretty guilty of being fairly money motivated, but I know, I know like if I can face that in reality and I can realize that that's not is what's going to make you successful. If you can focus on just delivering a great product or service, then you're going to be successful and, you know, the monetary side will follow, but it's not as easy. So somebody who can just put that on the back burner and say, hey, I'm just going to focus on a great customer experience and build an amazing service for people who come in and really help people. I could see why that would lead to such a great outcome for you guys. And you grew extremely quickly. How did that all unfold? Like in over the course of one year, two years, five years, and were there ups and downs? Yes. (laughs) To most of those questions. So we, when I first joined in 2000, again, we were just the one hospital and we really stayed just one hospital to, for the first 10 years that I was there. So most of the growth has been in the last decade mm-hmm. and especially the last five years. And to your point, at first, we had this founding group, if you will, that was all there in 2000, eight or nine of us. And we were very different because we did have a radiologist, an internist, and a cardiologist. And, and it's interesting, different personalities pick different specialties, you know? Mm-hmm. So we were all different, but the thing that was really sort of the common bond was we all wanted to be the best at what we did, you know, and that the care that would be delivered to that patient and the accompanying client would be top notch. So we surrounded ourselves with other people that felt that way, right? Because when I see a pet, I'm helping the cardiology, but maybe it really needs an internist. So I wanted to be around an internist who felt the same way. So I think that common bond, we grew this hospital that we were really proud of. And then the initial growth really happened in Cincinnati because some of our referral partners, that's what we call the general practitioners that send us their shared patients and clients to help and work together to get the best outcome. And we had referral partners in Cincinnati that were like, 
gee, we're sending clients two hours away. Why don't you build another MedVet in Cincinnati? We'll send there and we won't have to have our clients come two hours to see you. And so that was really the first pull was referral partners sort of asking us. And I think we were all like, hmm, why would we do that? <laughs> you know, because we had never really thought about expanding outside of our four walls at the time. And then once we did and we went to Cincinnati, then we sort of had the bug, like, wow, we can impact more people, right? We can impact more pets. So once we had the bug, then we started um, buying more, emer- we usually bought em- small emergency hospitals, Back in the 70s and 80s, a lot of veterinarians in different communities realized they didn't really want to work ER all the time for their patients. So they would come together in the community and start an ER and they might staff it themselves or they might hire docs to staff it. So those that formed in the 70s and 80s were sort of looking for exit strategies in 2000s, 2010s. So we wound up buying a fair number of community-owned ERs from those general practitioners, which was great, right? Gave them an exit strategy, gave us an opportunity to then add specialists to that hospital and build out a full specialty emergency hospital. So the beginning was, again, either a pull by a referral partner, and that's how we expanded in Ohio. The first time we went outside of Ohio, we went to Louisiana. That seems like a <laughs> little bit of an inorganic stretch, but yeah. we actually had um, our first surgery resident. Eric's first resident was a great guy named David Kurgison, and his wife's a medical oncologist. And they had both trained in Ohio, but then had he's a Southern boy, so he went home for roasted peanuts, he tells me, and um, really for fishing, I think. But he went back to Louisiana, and he eventually bought a practice And he saw an opportunity to expand into New Orleans, but he didn't really want to do that on his own. And we had all remained, you know, close colleagues. And so he called us up and said, maybe it's time I joined MedVet. So that's, then we were in different states, you know, and and the race was on. So. So it sounds like the growth was almost accidental, not accidental, but it was, it it was, you didn't start this with the intention of we're going to take over. It was almost drawn by outside. Like you said, they were like, Hey, build one here. And he said, how about I join the team? So you kind of had surround yourself with people that that helped more so than it was like this big plan to take over. Absolutely. It it grew much more organically than, you know, us sitting down and going, oh, we want to build this hospital and then this one. And, you know, it really didn't mm-hmm. start that way. Now, obviously, we've become more strategic about our growth over time because mm-hmm. um, we've seen, you know, growth such a great thing for us to be able to deliver better care, deliver better experience for our team because we have more resources to invest. And so, you know, once we got the growth bug, it became more strategic. But early on, it was pretty opportunistic. Mm-hmm. Did people ever start to copy the model? Like, were they were they watching the value and how much you were helping people and start to do it outside of the MedVet brand? So there's been numerous groups doing what we're doing now, for sure. Um, you know, we were still pretty early on, but the last five years, um, the profession has become very interesting to private equity investors. And so there's a lot of private equity funds looking for startups and encouraging, trying to do mergers and acquisitions and roll up. Um, And, you know, they're doing some good things for the profession, you know, some things that maybe aren't quite what we see as the best future for the profession. We have a great private equity partner (laughs) as a capital source, and we really appreciate them. But MedVet's very proud to be veterinarian owned and led. And we think that helps us always be about our team, care, and the experience of our clients. 
and again, you know, profit's important. We have to have profit to invest in our team and in, in improving our care and delivery. Stay alive and buy food and things yeah, like that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I like to think of a biologic <laughs> example. It's like blood and water, you know, I mean, you got to have them in your body, but the body's purpose isn't to have blood and water, right? The body's purpose is to, you know, be happy, be kind, do all the things you want to do. And for MedVet, our purpose is to deliver great care, right? To enhance the lives of pets, their loving families in the veterinary community. We have to have profit to do that. Private equity, they do exist for profit. I mean, that's their purpose, right? And so, you know, when I think about the profession, I want the profession to be guided by veterinarians who are going to be about the team and the pets and the clients, and in our case, referral partners. So we're very passionate about remaining veterinary owned and led. When you took on that private equity partner, is that kind of what sparked it from more of a serendipitous and organic growth model to uh, being more strategic over the last seven years and seeing more rapid growth? We were really doing it, and that's why we needed the money. You know, so um, they, that does often happen, though. The story you just told, right? A private equity sees a growing organization, and they help it become more strategic and and grow faster, and certainly they encourage M&A. Um, our team was a great source of capital. We, we took our first investment in 2013, a local group, Stonehenge. They were fantastic partners for us. Um, we really appreciated them. They were there when we needed them. Um, and we think we gave them a great return. So it was a win-win. But they really were there as more of a, if we needed advice, they would provide advice. But they didn't really drive. The growth was driven by the team. We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. Who is driving the the business side of things? I mean, when you have all those people's focus on their practice and, and executing on a daily basis, who is handling things, you know, behind the curtain? Well, that's a great question. In, originally, too many people, maybe. <laughs> we all had like one hand in our clinical practice and one hand on, we used to call it a board. It wasn't really a board, you know, it was a leadership team. But so early on, when we all owned our different little businesses, right, we kind of had eight or nine of us and we were the board and we met. And then when we decided, gee, we want to really grow outside of this and we think we can really impact the profession, we restructured. We became one organization. Eric took the lead role initially. And then I kind of emerged as a, you know, his second. And as we grew, we needed a regional medical director. We needed a chief medical officer. And and I took those roles as we grew into them with Eric as the president and CEO. So we really eventually both lifted out of clinical practice. Did you enjoy that transition into more of a business focus? I really did. I was thinking about what you said earlier, Tim. I, Even though I knew what I wanted to do, when I look back over my career, I've really sort of had three jobs. I was a academic cardiologist, right? Then I was a private practitioner, heads down, you know, just taking great care of my patients and clients as a cardiologist at MedVet. And then I did 10 years as a medical services leader. So I think I get a little bored (laughs) maybe or need a little new challenge. Yeah, I think it's taking parts of what you think you want to do and then learning like, oh, I don't like this part. I really like this part. And then you kind of work your way through it. You know, in my experience, it was like, I'm, I'm an artist, but I'm not, I would never call myself an artist. Like I'm not a painter or whatever, but I like music. So I went that route, thought I was an athlete, went that route. There was parts of, you know, travel that overlapped and then, you know, got into other things and it ended up just taking pieces of these, these professions or jobs or whatever, and then kind of trying to craft the perfect one. I wouldn't say that I'm there yet, but I, th- I think it sounds like you're like, oh, and then part of it is 
can I do it? I don't know if this was for you, but, and then you do it. And for me, sometimes it's like just whether or not I could do it, you know, like I'm the type of person, uh, we had the diamond, have you ever gone to diamond dog night at mm -hmm. like my friends would tell me I couldn't do stuff in order to watch me. And I would know very well that they know that I can eat 20 hot dogs, but they would say, no, you can't. And I'm like, I know you're, I know you're messing with me, but I'm going to eat the 20 hot dogs. And, you know? And so I think there's a little bit of, okay, we accomplished it. Goal, goal achieved. Now what's next? So it seems like you kind of leveled up a couple of times through your, through your journey, still staying in, in a industry very much so helping pets, but taking different roles to help them in different ways. From from I twenty hot dogs right. to podcasting, the story of Tim Trad. I, yeah, I just hope it turns into a book. I've I've eaten more than twenty, <laughs> and and the, the that's the final chapter. Yeah, and the debate started on do we have to eat the buns for it to count? And oh. yeah, man, there's there's so many stories there. We tried the uh, the Kobayashi dip and everything, and there's you ever seen the yeah like Nathan's yeah we mm -hmm. we're, that's a little bit off topic and disgusting. You, you dip it into lemonade, not water. Most people think it's water. Lemonade breaks it down faster so you can get it. Yeah. It's real gross. Insider tricks. Yeah. Yeah. So in case, in case you're thinking about switching careers again, yeah, you, didn't you, think you're, you didn't think you're going back to academia tonight, but <laughs> yeah. we're teaching lessons. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to beat the world record, but yeah, it sounds like you kind of took pieces that you liked and then kind of moved on and leveled up. Yeah. I think that's true. And to your point, I think the challenge of something new yeah. is, is exciting. Yeah, I, th I think if you can do something well, it could get, like you said, I feel like boring is kind of like a negative take on it, but it's like, if I woke up and I'm like, I'm going to crush this today, that that to me is like, yeah, I already did it. I kind of like that little bit of like, ooh, this should work. I hope it works, you know? Like that building a plane and then like kind of jumping off and see if it flies kind of thing. Like, I, I don't know, maybe that's like sadistic, but I enjoy, I enjoy that like potential smash into the wall because the thrill of like, oh, it did work, you know, that's like so exhilarating. Versus like, I know I can do this. All right, clock out. Yeah, true. JME Hospitality, your hospitality design partner. JME Hospitality works with food service facility owners, operators, and development pros to improve the overall efficiency of customer experience and the profitability of customer operations. JME has been consulting in the hospitality operations space for over 45 years providing solutions for schools and universities, healthcare institutions, hotels, resorts, and more. They also have extensive experience working within the design, construction, and manufacturing sectors. JME specializes in helping with a variety of different problems, including the COVID effect, redesigning the customer experience to protect their clients and the public during the pandemic. JME is passionate about serving the community you live in. They're doing this by supporting cancer research as well as youth outreach. And JME is offering a free consultation to all Conquering Columbus listeners. Just visit jmehospitality.com. That's jmehospitality.com. And mention the Conquering Columbus podcast to receive your free consultation. So what about MedVet today? Like, what does the organization look like and what's the outlook moving forward? So it's um, been having tremendous growth. Uh, the pandemic was, other than being terrible for the world um, and so many people, it's been a big boost to the volume of veterinary need in the communities. Probably don't know somebody who doesn't have a COVID puppy, do you? <laughs> I, I mean, think everybody, everybody's got one. <laughs> exactly. So I got mine before anybody got a fever. I want that to be noticed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got a dog right before this, right? 
That's right. Yeah. I'm the real dog lover. You're the real dog lover. That's right. Well, you know, I think people, it just reemphasized the need for the human animal bond, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously people had a little more time and they were home and those things fostered getting new pets. But I think more than anything, people were anxious and depressed and lonely and, you know, pets help with all that. So, so the number of pets increased dramatically. People were probably spending more time with their pets. So veterinary medicine really increased a lot during the pandemic. So this year we've been trying to keep up with our growth so that we can serve the communities. Um, but the organizations, I think in a really great spot, we're, we're sort of in that, uh, we're still in the rapid growth phase, not only from merger and acquisition. Um, we started our first Novo this year in Salt Lake City, which we're super proud of. Um, opened in August and we opened with seven specialties and 24-7 ER and they're just doing great. In fact, just got an employee experience survey. They had the highest engagement score of the whole organization. That's a big plus for DeNovos, really? <laughs> you know, starting from scratch with a great group that gets to build something. So we're excited about our growth through future DeNovos, through M&A, and then growing each hospital. We're also in that, I don't know they call it a awkward teenager time of life where we have to figure out how to scale a lot of things, right? I mean, that kind of growth going from, I think we had, 13 hospitals five years ago, you know, to 32 now, what's important to scale, right? You know, culture, employee experience, the client experience, what are you going to focus on and where are you going to put your resources? So we've been building out strong infrastructure to be able to get that stuff right. Great. That's something that's something we're dealing with right now, like growing very rapidly and, and, you know, seeing people, especially with the COVID stuff, people are at home and at the place, it's hard to grow so many areas at once and not have people feel, you know, either left out or unwelcome. Cause every, you know, when I, I've, again, I haven't had a jobs, but being the new person at a job, you know, everybody else has been there usually for a while, but if you hire everybody at once, everybody's new and they don't know who's been there or who does what, you know, and it's, uh, it's, it's something I've never experienced before. I think it's exciting as an outsider. It's, I almost view it as an outsider. It's like something I can, I'm not stressed out by, but I could see it being like a very, very difficult, if I were in charge of managing the whole thing, like yeah. I would not want to sign up for that. We hired 1200 people last year. Oh, wow. And so to your point, you know, you, you work hard to build this great culture, which we really try to build a culture based on our core values of teamwork, leadership, and compassion. And you work hard and you think you're getting there and then you hire double, you know, half your team is new. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, how did they get ingrained into that culture. You know, yep. they hear the new values at their new higher orientation, but what's really mm -hmm. ensuring that culture is maintained and that commitment to, you know, getting better every day. So we're spending a lot of time working on making sure we scale a great culture for our team. What about personal goals? I mean, you've achieved so much and, and you've done so many different uh, roles and, and focuses throughout your career and in academics. Where do you want to see yourself for the next two, three, five years or however far out that you plan? <laughs> I think that, um, you know, first and foremost, I want to do my role at MedVet really well. You know, I feel very responsible for each and every one of those team members and each and every hospital and certainly every patient and client and referral partner they touch. So I want to continue to grow into the role of um, and be the best CEO for the team. I have three grown up kids, so I'm transitioning from kids living in the house. We became officially became empty nesters two years ago, but then COVID hit. So, you know, half of them are back intermittently, <laughs> yeah. but you know, I think transitioning into the empty nester stage of life for me means, um, 
a little more focus on well-being, you know, making sure I'm working out. I've been really good about taking a walk every day with my dogs for about a year now. So just trying to do some healthy things like that for myself. You mentioned you have four dogs. What kind of dogs are those? So we have a German Shepherd, a Papillon, who's dastardly. (laughs) He's the boss, even though he's 15 pounds. And then I have my first... Australian Shepherd, who which have become really popular now. I don't know if you, you see him all the time. He's awesome. And then I said four because we had four in the car, but one is my grand dog. So um, we also have an eight-month-old Aussie pup that's my daughter's. That's a lot of energy out of, out of all those dogs. Yeah, it is. We, um, but you know, my family's pretty active, so they get a lot of a lot of walks and ball throwing and games like that. Hey, everybody! We're going to take a quick break here to talk about one of our sponsors, Hybeck. It's actually just me and Tim in the booth because, well, Josh is on his way over to the restaurant right now. So unluckily for us, we don't get any special treatment. I don't think he's bringing us back a pizza I don't think so. I'm a little jealous. We love Hypeck. I mean, I go there all the yeah. time. Their hot honey pizza they got going right now. Yep. That's man, what I was going to say. Is, as soon oh. as we had him on the episode, I called in before they even left and ordered it and picked it up on the way out. And it was the best. We're talking about the restaurant, but Hypeck's a lot more than just a restaurant. They distill whiskey and gin and vodka. They've got all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, they brought in a couple of different options for us to try recently. And I really like this Midnight Cask. It's a mixture, I think, of whiskey along with a port wine. And it kind of tastes like a Manhattan, but it's like double the strength. If you haven't listened to the episode yet, listen to the episode. I mean, the story behind the organization is great too, so. Yeah, it's a bunch of local entrepreneurs that just have a passion for making good food and great drinks. They just launched a thing called the Whiskey Society too, which I joined. Mm -hmm. And if you really like booze, it's worth checking out. It pays for itself just in the entry fee. And then you'll get cards for drinks every month. They put on events. Right now they're on Zoom, but teach you how to make drinks, tell you what to use, why you use those things. It's definitely for the whiskey enthusiast. I've enjoyed my membership so far, that's for sure. So if you guys like High Bank, if you're looking for a restaurant, somewhere to watch the game. If you're looking to put in an order for a pickup, check out High Bank, man. Their food's great. They're great people. Yeah. And we love their drinks. And get the hot honey pizza. Get the hot honey pizza. I promise you will love it. All right. Now back to the show. So as we conclude, any final advice for our listenership out there that are aspiring entrepreneurs or young professionals like 24 to 45 years old? Maybe I'll start with entrepreneurs because I'm probably a little closer to that group. I think surrounding yourself with great people and something that you're passionate about. You know, I'm one of those people who has been really lucky. I've never felt like I work. You know, I do what I love and people talk about work-life balance and I know it's important, but you know, for me, work is my life. I do love what I do. And so I don't ever feel torn of, you know, working on it. So I think part of that is finding your passion and part of that is surrounding yourself with great people. And then I had to teach myself this as I moved into medical leadership. Make sure you listen to them. (laughs) You know, you ask for their voice and actually act on their feedback would probably be the other things that I think have really helped me. For that younger group, I think it's still about following your passion and finding a group of people you like to be with and have similar philosophies and similar values. I have a question before before we finish. This is a little selfish. I've, I spent the last year alone and have toyed with, bowled over the idea of getting uh, a, some sort of adopted pet. However, I don't feel I can properly take care of myself. So I haven't, and, and I mean, that's like funny, but it's legitimately true. I feel like a human, if I had to take care of a human, they would be in bad shape. So I'm like, oh man, I feel bad for an animal. If Do you have a specific company or organization or process? Do you, do you Are you involved in the adoption at all? Or like, if, if so, someone like me that's listening, that's thinking about, potentially adopting? Is there somebody, somewhere that you would point them or something that you guys do yourself? We don't do any adoption or pet placement, but there are so many great groups. 
you know, and I know them from different places in the country, but I strongly encourage adoption because there are a ton of pets that mm-hmm. need homes. Now, that's another thing the pandemic was really good for. The shelters got emptied, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. We hope they don't come back. You know, yeah. <laughs> have to be careful because to your point, sometimes people get a pet and they don't realize what a commitment it is. Mm-hmm. So I think local humane societies, you know, just Google rescue groups, they're all over. Um, you know, and I think- I like your responsibility about it because there are people that get a pet and then they realize, oh my gosh, you know, this is a living thing and it's like making a mess and it needs to be fed and it needs to be walked and it's crazy if I don't run it, you know, with the Mm -hmm. ball. So you don't want to get a pet when you're not ready, but boy, when you're ready, they're just so fantastic. You know, they're just such a joy for life. And, and some are lower maintenance, like a cat. You could get a cat. (laughs) That's yeah. (laughs) That's what people have said. I'm a big fan of, of animals. Like they're, they're, I like animals more than children. But my friends who have children, I can deal with their kids, you know, for a while. But then I like that I get to go home when they're crying and freaking out. You know, I'm like, all right, well, that was nice to see you. I'll see you next week. Um, but yeah, the the I know a lot of people that did pull the trigger and were very happy. I just haven't done it yet. I think I think it's something I need to do, but um, I'm uh, apprehensive. Yeah, it's a big commitment. I think my some days I forget to eat myself. And I'll get lightheaded and then I'm like, oh man, I should probably eat. I should probably take care of myself. I'd feel bad for, you know, an animal that, that couldn't feed itself. Well, here's the good news. If it's a dog, they'll let you know. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> they have an internal clock that's mm-hmm. unbelievable. So our last question of the show is centered on a theme, which is live uncomfortably. So we always ask our guests, when you hear the phrase, you know, what, what do you reflect on? How does it apply to your life? And what does it mean to you? Well, I like your theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for me... I think it's all about taking risks. I don't quite have that adrenaline gene you've <laughs> to Tim. Like I wouldn't jump out of a plane, um, but I have benefited from taking risks throughout my life. And I, I think um, people need to not be afraid of failure or maybe afraid of imperfection. And that's one thing I'll credit Eric with teaching me early on in medical services leadership. Cause you know, a lot of clinicians, they are kind of perfectionists. You want every patient to have a great outcome and every client to have a great experience. And when you move into leadership, you know, leadership isn't perfect, <laughs> you know, and you got to take a lot more risks and you have to make a lot of decisions with more uncertainty and you got to be willing to, you know, dive in, learn from failure, get back up and keep going and so Eric always told me, don't let great get in the way of good, you know, because a whole lot of good will get your needle right to great. So I think taking those risks and kind of get out of your own way and don't let failure, of fear of failure keep you back. Well, that's awesome. That's really powerful. I think uh, just just the line of don't let great get in the way of good is, is so uh, meaningful to a lot of people because you want to feel like everything you do in life is going to tee off perfectly. And sometimes it stops us from taking that massive action. That is really what is needed to, to get it done. So Linda, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, it was great. Hopefully you enjoyed it as well. And I think our listenership is uh, going to get a lot out of your story and the story of MedVet. So thank you again. Yeah. Thanks for coming on.